be happy. Uh, we're going to be reading Genesis 11, chapters 10 to 32, instead of what you find in your bulletin. That's Genesis 11, chapters 10, I'm sorry, Genesis 11, verses 10 to 32. As it is my custom, I usually give you the introduction and then read. Oftentimes, I don't even mention the text before, but since there was a change, I wanted to make sure that you knew where we were going. And if you are the type of person that, have, that has never read your Bible through all the way, and you often cherry pick and skip to parts that are more important, this message is for you. When I was growing up, I used to watch this TV show called Name That Tune. They would play a little bit of the beginning of a song and the person would have to guess the song. As an introduction, I would like to play that game with you this morning, but not the morning, not naming of the tune, but the naming of something else. Once upon a time, there was a little girl who lived in a village near the forest. Whenever she went out, the little girl wore a red riding cloak. And so everyone in the village called her Little Red Riding Hood. You know that story, don't you? Good. Because you're the only one that's going to really track with me. So the rest of them, they're, they're older. They don't remember these stories. Once upon a time, there was a little girl named Goldilocks. She went for a walk in the forest. Pretty soon, she came upon a house. She knocked, and no one answered. She walked right in. Once upon a time, there lived a widow woman and her son Jack on their small farm in the country. It came as no surprise to you that these were introductions to a story. All of you knew the stories. Well, I hope you do, or hope you did. Actually, the phrase, once upon a time, alerts the reader or listener that a particular story is coming. It's not a murder mystery or some comedy relief. It is usually an introduction to a fairy tale, right? Yes, once upon a time, and then you lean back, you get your hot chocolate, and you listen for the story. This knowledge is something we all know well in America, at least I can say that. It is something that is ingrained in the European and the American mind. Of course, the Hebrew mind is different. For ancient Israelites, they knew an important story was coming when they heard... This is the book of generations, or the book of the genealogy of. And like our once upon a time, that tells us a fairy tale is coming for the Hebrew, this is the book of generations is often the introduction to a salvation story. How God used one man to save his people. Why should we be concerned about genealogies in the Bible? Are genealogies just beneficial for those theological nerds? Will genealogies offer any practical help for an average person like you and me? 
Will learning about genealogies help me on a Monday morning? Well, I hope you will get an answer to all of these questions by the end of the sermon. My goal this morning is to get you excited about biblical genealogies. I know you want to go to sleep right now, but I'm, I'm, that's what I'm going to task myself to do this morning. Because genealogies are good for Christian growth. Actually, this is the title of this morning's message. Genealogies are good for Christian growth. Genealogies communicate many divine truths to us. But this morning, we will only highlight three. One, genealogies are an introduction to an important salvation narrative. Two, genealogies are a comfort that God keeps and calls his people. And three, genealogies are reminders that God keeps his promises. So now, we are finally at the spot where we're going to read. Follow along with me. That's Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 to 32. And this is God's word. Even though many of you skip over it, this is his word. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Achpachshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Achpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Achpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Achpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years and fathered Eber, and Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcha, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcha, and Ischa. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah was 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Let's pray. 
Lord of immortality, before whom angels bow and angels veil their faces, enable me to see and serve thee with reverence and godly fear. Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto our path. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. So make the Bible come alive to us today, O Lord. Show me myself. Show us ourselves. Show me our Savior. Show us our Savior. Make the book come alive to us, O Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Though I started with fairy tales as an introduction, I want to make clear that it is unthinkable that Jewish people would ever include mythological characters in their genealogy. In Jewish writing, the presence of a genealogy indicates historical narrative. Genealogy is proof that our faith is rooted and grounded in history. It is not a myth or a fairy tale. We sang today about this story that we will tell you about how Christ had died for us. Well, there was a person by the name of Jesus at one time. This is a real thing. It is not Goldilocks. It is not Jack and the Beanstalk. This is a real person centered around real events. A real faith is founded on real people and real events that happened in the past. As the Apostle Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of them, arraigned, uh, most of them remain until now, meaning the time that the book of 1 Corinthians was written. This is not a fairy tale. This is a real live event. And Paul goes and takes it far with lots of evidence to show that this is real. This historical fact did not just happen. It was not false witnesses. This is all about truth. But it was about Jesus rising from the dead. And he was raised the third day. And we too are raised from the dead. But genealogies are proof of that historical fact. So let us praise God for the faith that, that our, our faith is grounded in real life and not in a fairy tale. Amen? Genealogies are an introduction to an important salvation narrative. This is our first point this morning. We have a genealogy back in chapter 5. Of Genesis, right? We're in Genesis. We have one back in chapter 5. As you can see for yourself, if you turn there, it starts with these words, this is the book of generations of Adam. When we look at the man who would be highlighted immediately after this genealogy, who do we discover? Yes, Noah. The rest of the story, which covers the next three chapters, is about how God saved the remnant through one man, Noah. So even if you can't pronounce some of the names in a genealogy, it is the ancient Hebrew way of alerting the reader that an important salvation story is coming. It's almost like when you're reading, you see these neon lights, flashing lights. 
when you come to a genealogy? Is this, is this an important narrative of God's big picture? Is this person really important in the Bible? Is Noah really that important? Well, let us answer the last question first. Noah is important because he's chronologically the second Adam. I didn't say he was the second Adam like Jesus. Chronologically, in chronological order, he's the second Adam. He was responsible for replenishing the earth after the flood. This narrative is important because this is the first time we see salvation and judgment from a universal perspective. And why is this significant? What do we learn from our God by the flood narrative? Out of the world, God sovereignly selected who would be in the boat. You are all thinking individuals. Do you think God did it that way for the flood and all of a sudden changed his mind and said, I have sent Jesus into the world now. Whoever chooses Christ by his own reasoning power will be saved. So God chose these eight people to be in the ark. And now it's left up to man to decide to choose Christ. Only those who were in the boat were saved. God commanded those eight people to get into the boat and the rest of humanity perished. It is the same today as it was back then. God will rain judgment upon the whole earth. No one will escape except those who are in God's merciful ark. But it's no longer a physical ark. Now we have an ark that is not made by physical hands. No longer a physical object, but a divine person. And so divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. For the Apostle Paul said he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If God is working in your life and you are being convicted by the Holy Spirit this morning... And if you don't know Christ or you're not sure you know Christ, you too can enter into the ark of safety with Jesus. Then you can know him today. You don't have to wait till tomorrow. You don't have to wait for this sermon to be over. You can interrupt this sermon, go to God and pray, and he will save you. Pray this prayer with me if you are, if you're here and you don't know. Father, I see clearly my sin. I also see the remedy of my sin is Christ. I receive Christ today as my only Savior and Lord. And I thank you that I have been forgiven and set free today. If you prayed that prayer the first time today, let an elder know. Let a deacon know. Let a, let a leader in this church know that you've made that decision. The genealogical record that we will study today starts in Genesis 11.10. These are the generations of Shem. Now, what do we know? A salvation narrative is about to follow, right? That's what we've learned. Or that's what you're trying to judge whether I know what I'm talking about, right? So when you see these words, you say, okay, Brian said, a salvation narrative is about to follow. Let's check this out. Who is, the main, who is the man who will be the focus of the next 13 chapters in Genesis? I think his name is Abram at that time, right? And whose name will be changed to Abraham? 
Abraham will be given a promise. Now the promise was made to Abraham and to his offsprings, and that offspring, Galatians tells us, is Christ. So the inheritance doesn't come by the law, but by the promise. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. So if you don't know, if you didn't know before, Abraham is an important person in the unfolding of God's salvation plan. Some boast that Abraham was and is their father, but we too can say Abraham is our father. Because we are connected to him through Christ. There's another genealogical record. It opens the book of First Chronicles. Now let us review. The book of generations usually comes before what? A salvation narrative. Glad you said that. And there is usually a man that God uses to deliver his people. After the genealogy in First Chronicles, who is that man? David! That's right. Yes, David. King David. God will use King David, a beloved son of God, to deliver his people Israel. This is an important character because when the Messiah appears, he will fulfill the office of king. Actually, he shall be called the son of David. Not only is Jesus like Noah because he will be the ark of safety for all believers, but Jesus will be like David because he is king and his kingdom will never end. And the last example can be found in the New Testament. Many people skip the opening of the gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Matthew is a Hebrew book. So naturally you would think they would start it with those neon lights, right? Now that we know that the Hebrew equivalent, once upon a time, we will be blown away by the opening of Matthew 1.1. What do you think it says? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And will a salvation narrative follow? And who is the man who would take not three chapters like Noah, 12 chapters like Abraham, or 19 chapters like David, 1 Chronicles, but will take the whole book of Matthew and the rest of the New Testament? It would be Jesus the Christ, the promised seed of the woman, Jesus, Isaiah's suffering servant, God's Sabbath rest, God's protection from the flood of judgment, God's answer to sin's problem of the world, and the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of Mary. This, this is Christ the king, who the shepherds guard and angels sing, haste, haste to bring him glory. The king, the son of And just in case we tried to put salvation account on the same level as Noah, Abraham, David, Matthew starts with the birth of Christ. We have no information in scripture about the birth of Noah, do we? How about the birth of Abraham? Just that he was born. Not even King David's birth is recorded, but we have Jesus, the only eternal redeemer whose birth is described both in detail in Matthew and in Luke. And if we're ever tempted to try to put Moses in the same category as Jesus, because there is some information about his birth, Matthew and the gospel writers give extensive details about Jesus' death. 
Nothing is mentioned about the death of Moses. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Hebrews 3, 3-6. Jesus' birth was significant because the promised seed of the woman had finally arrived on earth. His death was significant because it accomplished his reason for coming to earth, to bring salvation to all kinds of men. The meaning of Jesus' name is Savior of his people. If you did not know the meaning of Jesus' name, then you would still know his purpose. God will use that one man to save his people. And how would you know that? By knowing this one significant fact. A salvation story often follows the book of the genealogy of. Not only do, not only do genealogies introduce the reader to important salvistic, salvistic history, but genealogies can also bring the believer comfort that God chooses his people and keeps his people. Chapter 10, verse 1 reads, there are, back to Genesis, chapter 11, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 1 says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, and Ham, and Jepheth, sons who were born of the flood. From the youngest to the oldest, Jepheth, then Ham, then Shem. Shem is the last but there is an extended explanation of Shem's descendants. Shem is the last one. His name is, uh, his descendant is Peleg. His name means divided. That is a prelude to the Tower of Babel. The land was scattered and in disarray. Out of the chaos, God chooses Shem and his generations to be the lineage from which Abraham, David, and eventually Christ came from. What was so special about Shem? We find nothing in the text to single him out as doing great things for God. These are children, there are children's books written about Moses, about David, about Mary, about Joseph, never about Shem. Shem is not mentioned after Genesis. His name is repeated only because the genealogy was repeated. Abel and Noah are mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, but no mention of Shem. There's, nothing, there's, there's no mention of Shem in the New Testament at all. Shem did nothing out of the ordinary, but fathered sons and daughters, one of which was Apachshad. Maybe we can look at his name most times, we can draw conclusions about biblical characters by the names they've been given. So maybe that's it. Maybe we should look at his name, right? Because David is beloved of God. Jesus is salvation of, the, of his people. What about Shem? What, what, is that, what does that word mean? It means name. <laughs> that's it. Just name. Moses, you know, drawn out. He was able to draw out the river because it was a foreshadow that God would use him to draw his people from Egypt. Adam means mankind, and he would be the representative of all mankind. Ezra means help, aid, and protect. Isn't that what Ezra did? But Shem, it means name. That's it. Just name. There was nothing special about Shem. Even his name was not special. 
So if nothing was special about Shem, why did God choose him instead of Jephthah or Ham? Because he wanted to. It is as simple as that. It is not because of Shem's works, but because of him who calls. God told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So Paul goes on to say it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Remember that these words were penned by Moses to the children of Israel just before they entered the promised land. We read Genesis 5. They were just about to go in. And a lot of the spies said, they're big. We're afraid. They're going to crush us. They needed courage. They needed encouragement. I'm not Moses. I'm not the futuristic David. I'm just, I don't know, somebody's Hebrew name. And God mentions Shem, name. Actually, there's nothing significant about any of the names in Shem's lineage. Nothing significant about Shem. But it isn't what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful nor noble of noble birth. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Yes, what made Shem so special then? Nothing. It was not Shem who was special, but God that called Shem. That should have brought the children of Israel comfort when they're going into that land. If God called and kept Shem and Apachshad and Shelah and Eber, all these people we don't even know, God could and would keep the Israelites who were about to enter into the chaos of the promised land. And we must pay attention to this little phrase, and he had other sons and daughters. Every name mentioned in Shem's genealogy had the phrase attached to it. Out of all the sons and daughters they had, why was just one chosen to be in the lineage? Because God willed it. I don't know why God chooses who he chooses, but R.C. Sproul says in his book, Chosen by God, one thing I do know, if it pleases God to save some and not all, there is nothing wrong with that. God is not under obligation to save anybody. If he chooses to save some, that in no way obligates him to save the rest. Don't fret over the rest who have not been called. Just praise God for the some. Praise God that you are one of his and you are considered one of the sum. You may be considered nothing in this world, but you are something in God's family. You don't think so? Why did he go to the cross? Why, did he, why was he raised from the dead? To secure a people for himself. Well, you think he was just wasting his, wasting away, wasting his time? He could have been definitely doing other things. But he went to the cross to secure salvation for you and for me. Think about the fact that God called you. 
Maybe you are the smallest in your family. Maybe you are the least in your neighborhood. Maybe you are an insignificant one at your job. Take courage. God uses the weak things to confound the wise. Just think about this fact. Praise God for the fact that he chose a nobody like you and me to him. And now we're a somebody because of him. The book of genealogies or generations communicates all that. And yet there is more. So don't you dare skip over genealogies in the future. Genealogies are a reminder that God keeps his promises. God gives a blessing and a promise in Genesis 2.17. And I know what you're thinking immediately, Brian, but that's where you're supposed to preach from. You do 2.17. I know, I know, I know. I'm going to get there. I will. But he gave a promise there. He said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam and Eve did die that day. They were spiritually separated from God, and that will eventually lead to physical death. God kept that promise, and the genealogy which begins with, these are the generations of Shem, is evidence. Shem was 600 years old when he died. Apakshad was 438 years old when he died. Shelah was 433 years when he died. Peleg was 239 years when he died. Sherog, 230 years. And Abraham's father only lived to 205 years. You shall surely die. And each generation lived increasingly less than the generation before. God keeps his promises. The book of generation proves it. Shem genealogy ends with Abram, and Abram was given a promise, and in, in you all families of the earth will be blessed. And King David was given a promise, but I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. To Judah, a promise. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Genesis 49, 10. Isaiah was given a promise. And unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. The promise of Zerubbabel was that God had chosen him and made him a signet ring and will build his house, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit, saith the Lord. And the promise to Eve that her seed will crush the head of the servant, and the promise to Joseph that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. And to Micah was given a promise, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel, Matthew 2 and 5. A promise was given to Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of the beast of burden, Matthew 21, 5. If you didn't know, that was the meaning of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a promise fulfilled that, that, that was made in Zechariah. In Zechariah 9.9, the children and all the people of Jerusalem celebrated the coming of the divine king. The crowds that weren't before Jesus and the ones that follow after were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna 
in the highest. They laid palm trees down like a royal carpet. The whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? It's a good question. Who is this? The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. But he was more than a prophet. He was the prophet that God would raise up and the promise one to come from Deuteronomy 18. The one who fulfilled the promise of the seed of the woman. The one who succeeded where the first Adam failed. The one who became the ark of safety, but unlike Noah without sin. The ark of the, the seed of Abraham, the son of David. Who is this riding a colt through the city of Jerusalem and stirring up the whole city? Who's causing so much ruckus? Who is this? Who is this that opened blinded eyes and set our spirits free? It is none other than King Jesus. How do we know about all these names and promises? How, where, where do we get these? How, what are they connected to? It's connected to the book of generations. This is how we know God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. The world thinks biblical genealogies are boring and pointless. And unfortunately, sometimes we do too. But now we know better. Genealogies are an introduction to an important salvation narrative. It links the whole Bible together. Look how much you learned this morning. You can go out and witness to somebody by just reading the genealogies. True story. True, true story. And a missionary come to my school one day not the school that I work in, but the school that I was going to for seminary. And he said, you Americans, you don't know what your the power of your Bible. He says, do you know how many Muslims get saved by reading Matthew 1, 1? What? What are you talking about? He went on to explain that if this Christian God can be so honest to tell them the, the weaving and the, to be so honest, they must come to that Christian God. Oh, not all Muslims. Don't twist the words out I say. Not all Muslims, but a lot of them have dropped to their knees and say, that's an honest God. I want it. I want him. But what do we do? We skip it. Don't skip it. Don't skip the book of generations. These are the generations of. Don't skip it. It's neon lights and it says, hey, salvation story is coming. Hey, God keeps his people and his promises. Hey, God chooses whom he chooses. Because that's who he wants to choose. I know that's not the American God. But that's the God of the Bible. He gets to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And how he wants to do it. Why should we be concerned about genealogies in the Bible? Because they are God's way of encouraging us to continue to look to him. The one who's able to keep us from falling. And to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
Do you fall? You don't have to say so. I'll tell you I do. Often. But I look to him who keeps me from falling. Or picks me up when I fall. Are genealogies just beneficial for those theological nerds? No, they are beneficial for those of us who sometimes doubt the goodness of God in times of trouble. Will genealogies offer any practical help for an average person like me? Yes, we only have to remember Shem, Eber, Shirug, Nehor, Apachshad, names we don't even pronounce in English. All nobodies, dead and gone. Only record we have is in scripture. We don't know them. They're not connected to our family. We got no stories about them outside of scripture. None of noble birth. Nobodies of great exploits. Just plain, old, ordinary people who God sovereignly calls. God calls average people to be in his family. That's how I started the, the, the Sunday morning service today. Trying to get our minds focused on Christianity is not an individual religion. It's a communal religion. It is you and me. He died for you and me. Not just for you. I know we do that, knocking on people's door. If Christ, you were the only one, Christ would have died for you. That is not biblical. He died for all of us, all of his people. And all of his people will stand before him in glory. Why? Because of the great exploits? No. Because of the Christ who died for you and me. That's the only reason we're going to stand. That's the only plea we have. Not in creed, not in device, but in Christ's work, finished work on the cross, applied to our account. Amen. But if you can't say amen, then say, oh, me. Because it's sad if you can't see the greatness of our God. What about Monday morning? Will learning about genealogies help me on a Monday morning? Yes, it will help you and me. Because Monday mornings is when we start to listen to the enemy and doubt the trustworthiness of God. Oh, you were happy in church, wasn't you? Oh, you was all holy in church, wasn't you? Look at you now on Monday, thinking about stealing that pencil. Look at you now on Monday. I see those thoughts of how you're thinking about your colleague who just slammed the door in your face. You're not all that holy. And if we were into talking to the devil, we'd say, yeah, you're right. It's not me anyway, it's Christ. Now get out of here. Get behind me. I'm not listening to you. As we leave this morning, let us think of our blessed Redeemer. Let us think of him all day long, even on a Monday morning. Let us sing and let his love be the theme of our song. Would have been wonderful to and with redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. 
Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, again his child, and forever I am. Oh, what joy, what joy, exceeding joy we're going to have when we're in his presence forever. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, teach us to see that if Christ has pacified you and satisfied divine justice, he can also deliver us from our sins. That Christ does not desire us now justified to live in a self-confidence in our own strength, but give us the law of the spirit of life to enable us to obey you. You have taught us that faith is nothing else than receiving your kindness, that it's an inheritance to Christ, arresting on him. I bless you that we are yours in our Savior Jesus. Help us to worship you, for it is just a foretaste of glory divine. Help us to remember this day, the day you have called us all together to worship you, how you loved us and invited us to delight in your glorious rest, how you have redeemed us from the ravages of sin and how you are coming again for your people, not just one person, but for all of your people. No one will be left. Hallelujah. The spirit and the bride say come and the let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty says come and let the one who desires to take the water and without life without price say come and every Lord's day let that reverberate in our soul. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.